We'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're new to us today, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. And over the past month or so, we've been walking through this Old Testament wisdom book. We find ourselves right in the middle, looking at chapters 7 and 8. Just to catch us up, the author who identifies himself as Koheleth, or preacher, has tried to find meaning in his life in a number of different ways. He's tried relationships. He tried food and wine. He tried giving his life to work, his career. He's tried wealth and success and laughter. He's tried education, architecture. He's even tried gardening, just planting flowers, bushes, trees. He's tried everything, all the money in the world, all the biggest parties he could have, the big house with the swimming pool in the middle, a chapati machine that shoots out a fresh chapati at his commands. He had it all. Everything he'd ever dreamed of, everything he'd ever wanted, he had. But what does he say about his experience? He says, it was all vanity under the sun. All of it. It's like chasing the wind. Probably never tried this, but if you had, you'd figure out you can't grab on to the wind. You can't hold on to the wind. You can't even see the wind. The preacher says every pleasure he chased after was like chasing the wind. Fruitless, pointless, empty, vain. Well, in our passage today, we see that in this life, we are limited. No matter what we pursue or how we live, there are limits to this life. We don't know everything. And we don't like it. We don't like interruptions to our schedules or plans. We don't like not knowing how things will turn out. We don't like not knowing the future. It's unsettling, isn't it? And we can't fix it. There's no such thing as a fortune teller. No one can read your palms and tell you your future. Your birth month doesn't tell you anything about your personality. There's no astrologist, no one who can take your birthday and give you some kind of spirit animal that'll tell you how your life will go. There's no magic eight ball that'll give you a glimpse into the days ahead. We don't know what will happen next year, much less next month, next week, or even tomorrow. Well, how do we live this way? How do we live with the limits of wisdom? How do we live when there's so much we don't know? How do we get up in the morning out of bed in a world like this? Well, welcome again to this gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. I hope you're encouraged today. It's obvious we need God's wisdom, don't we? Right? We need God's help to live this limitless life. We need his help in a world of limitations. And the preacher is going to help us today. He's going to help us in a world of limitations. He'll give us four lessons. Four lessons in these two chapters. We'll take them one at a time. Lesson number one. Death is a profound teacher. 
One way we live wisely is by understanding that the reality of death has something to teach us. The preacher shows us this with a series of proverbs. They're like little diamonds of truth. Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. In the preacher's culture, people put on ointments or oils for a special party to smell nice, like fancy perfume or cologne. The preacher is saying that God is more committed to our character, our name, than our short-term happiness, a singular event. And how does a good name come? He's not being sarcastic when he says at the end of verse 1 that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, how is this the case? The maternity ward in the hospital is a happy place. There's balloons everywhere. There's presents. There's smiles. There's laughter. There's lots of pictures being taken of the little cute baby. There's joy. There's anticipation for the future. Even if we haven't become a parent ourselves, we can imagine the joy a baby brings, the life ahead for that child. So how can death be better? Well, birth is all about potential, but death for the believer is all about fulfillment. It's about a life well lived in anticipation of eternity. That baby will grow up, he or she will go through heartbreak and pain and conflict, but at death, all the pain ends. And at death, you know a few things. You've learned from experience. And there's no time to mess up your name or reputation. A baby hasn't experienced anything yet. What the preacher seems to be saying is that the day of your death is a better teacher than the day of your birth. That seems to be the context in light of verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind... And the living will lay it to heart. The day of your death is a better teacher than the day of your birth. When life comes toward the end, everything comes into focus. The things that don't matter and the things that do. It's been said that the coffin preaches better sermons than the cot. We don't dwell on life's limitations when a child is born. No, we dream about their future and our hopes are high. We have big dreams for little Johnny or little Jesse that they'll be a football World Cup star one day. That they'll be uh, a doctor or an astronaut or an artist. But, But at the house of mourning, the mood is more reflective. The preacher is saying, don't be a fool. Consider your death. The wise person stares into the coffin and realizes that one day it'll be his time. So, how do I not waste my life? The coffin is a reminder that life is on loan to us. It's a gift that we can't take for granted. Funerals not something we have too often here in Dubai, is it? Our older members go back home to retire and live out their last days. Others have left when they're quite sick. Sometimes they go home, they pass away there. I've only done one funeral in almost 10 years of ministry here, and that was to help another pastor at a church across town. I've done a lot of weddings, I've seen a lot of babies be born, but not a lot of funerals. Now, I'm not complaining. We don't necessarily want more funerals. 
<laughs> it's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. The fact that people go home to die means that we tend to forget about death. Funerals teach us something critical about life. That it's short. That it's brief. The preacher is saying, don't forget about death. Live today, live your life like you're going to die one day because you will. Well, the Puritans prepared their minds for the brevity of life. They would often lay out their clothes the night before and imagine that those were their burial clothes. They would remind themselves that they have just one life and that that life is a short one. Now, death is a profound teacher. Redeemer Church, live today in light of that reality. Death will come. We don't know when, so don't waste today. Oh, would our life motto be like the Apostle Paul's? Would Christ be magnified in our lives? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the unwasted life. We're on this planet for a few years. Why? Well, to fulfill the very purpose for which God made us. To make Christ look good. Death is coming. And for the believer, that means heaven is on its way. In the few years that we have here, we handle our relationships, our retirement, our sicknesses, and our trials in such a way as to show to the world that Jesus is the most important reality in our lives. Practically speaking, how exactly should you use the money you have? I don't know. But I do know that you should use it in such a way as to show the world that Jesus is more important to you than your money. Which job should you take? I don't know. But I do know that whatever career path you take, use it to show that Jesus is more important to you than your job. And day in and day out, how should you respond to your trials? I don't know. But I do know that how you trust God should show the world that Jesus is more important to you than your security and your comfort and your health. Death is coming. But we can use it as a teacher because we know that it's not the end of the story. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. Prosperity is not always good and suffering is not always bad. Not only should we think about death, but the preacher says we should think differently about suffering. Prosperity is not always good, and suffering is not always bad. This is counterintuitive for us. It's backwards. We think, no, prosperity is always a good thing, and suffering can't be good. Now, we may be limited in our knowledge, but the preacher says, hang on, you've got it wrong about prosperity and trial. Verses 3 and 4. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And that's counterintuitive. It's backwards. What he's saying is sorrow is better than laughter because it teaches us something. The wise go to the house of mourning. The fool always to the house of mirth. Mirth is amusement. It's something characterized by Laughter. The person who is always happy is a fool. The preacher says he doesn't know the ramifications of his actions. Now, as parents, this is why we discipline our children. 
It's hard. It hurts them in the moment, but that hard moment teaches them. This is also why rebuke is helpful, not just for children, but adults. Verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Rebuke is hard. And it might not always be 100% correct, but we have to learn from it. When you're confronted, don't fight back. Listen well. Verse 6. The wicked prosper because their laughter starts and ends quick. It's temporary. Like thorns burning, they light on fire quickly, but that's it. They wither just as quickly. What the preacher is saying is prosperity isn't always a good thing. Our lives are shaped by sorrow, discipline, adversity. It's not a blessing to always prosper. The preacher is saying if you always do, you'll lack some valuable lessons. When a winner wins the gold medal in the Olympics, when a runner wins, there's a lot more to it than just those few minutes of that race. That race or that event is just the cherry on top of so much more. Surely there, there's been adversity, there's been suffering, there's been lots of trials. And I know just a small taste of this. I started running more seriously this past week. I'd love to run a race, maybe even a marathon. With my broken body, it would be a bit of a miracle if I could finish a long race. But I started running, and on Tuesday, I made a new runner's mistake. Just a tip. Don't ever, 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 ever run when it's 87% humidity and still October in Dubai. Let me just save you some trouble. Don't do it. It was horrible. It was miserable. I was sweating. My eyes were burning. I thought they were on fire. I was soaked. My hips were hurting. My legs were hurting. Of course, I can't blame that on the weather, but it was bad. I did the best I could. And if I actually get to race and I finish that race, that race will just be like the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. Right, a marathon runner will have a lot of pain along the way, suffering and trial, but the finished product comes through a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of suffering, a whole lot of trial, a whole lot of discipline. The end result comes through trial. Friends, don't miss the blessings of your trials. Don't miss what God is doing in your trials. The trials themselves aren't good, but they are shaping. They build greatness into people. Success and growth doesn't come in spite of our trials. It always comes through our trials. This is why James can say in James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. Because? Now here's why. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Have you noticed this in your life? Does your faith grow in the good times? Or does it grow in the bad times? Trials draw us closer to the Lord. We can see this as we go back to the tragic events of our lives. Those were the, the valleys, those, those valleys that though they lacked sunshine, we actually grow. 
Enjoyment doesn't shape us. It's the scars that shape us. It's the scars of life that grow us more into the image of Christ. This is why we can sing songs like it is well with my soul when we're suffering because we know that God is doing a great work in our hearts. Prosperity is not always good and suffering is not always bad. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world. If you're going through a trial now, maybe God is using it for your good to wake you up. He's been talking to us the whole time, but we finally take notice when we're in pain. And when we're in pain, we have two ways we can respond. Two ways we're likely to respond. We either run away from God, or we wake up and we embrace God. And as I go through pastoral ministry here in Dubai this past decade, it grieves my heart when people leave the church because of their trials. One of the main reasons people leave God and people leave the church is because of their trials. They'll say, I'm leaving because my spouse committed adultery. It's just too much. I'm leaving because my child has this disability. Why would God ever do that? Or a loved one has passed away. Or I've seen people leave God and the church who grew up in the church. Maybe even their dad was a pastor and yet they saw their father who was a pastor, live a life of great hypocrisy. And they said, I've had enough of this. Or like in verse 7 there, in chapter 7, maybe you've faced oppression of some kind. Maybe even here in Dubai, maybe you have faced racism. Maybe you've had an evil, wicked boss. Maybe someone has stolen from you. Maybe injustice has happened to you directly. Maybe you've been assaulted in some way. Maybe you've been abused in some way. And because of that, wondered what is God doing you thought maybe of even walking away many suffer and instead of the trials waking them up they get embittered they leave the church they walk away from God but what the preacher is saying here is that God is doing a million things in your suffering that you can't see right now God is working in and through you he is growing you friend if this is you if you're hurting now you're going through a dark dark time don't walk away maybe you barely came today you've been entertaining those same thoughts you're going to give up on god you're going to give up on the church friend don't walk away don't leave it's not an accident that you're here today and if that's you i'm speaking directly to you right now don't leave don't go you may feel trapped you may feel depressed you may feel crushed by debt your circumstances may be horrible friends stay 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 if you're about to leave stop there's an old television show in the 1970s that i like to see from time to time it's called the bob newhart show and on this show the main character newhart was a psychologist a counselor and he has in this show a series of people who come to see him for counseling and they share their deepest darkest problems their dark secrets some of them are uh, are going through all kinds of difficult things and at first uh, bob newhart just listens to them he's quiet he lets them just 
spill their lives out. And then all of a sudden, after being quiet for some time, he just starts yelling at them, stop it, stop it, just stop it. Now we all know that's terrible counseling, isn't it? (laughs) If you're a counselor, that'll get you fired if you do that. But I often think about that. And there are many times in my pastoral ministry that because of the danger our members are in, I just, with my heart, I just want to yell out, just stop. Just stop it. Now, of course, we want to be gracious, but friend, if you're considering walking away from the church, walking away from God, I plead with you with grace and with love, not yelling, but I just urge you to just stop. Just stop it. Don't run. Don't leave God. Don't leave the church. For the sake of your soul, stop and stay. In verse 8, finish strong. You see there, the preacher tells us, be patient, not proud. You may be struggling greatly, but in your pain, verse 9, don't become angry. Don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. Push on to the end. When I think about this, I often think about one of my seminary professors, a man um, who's passed away, but uh, his name was Howard Hendricks. In his early, or actually late 20s, he was finishing a seminary, and in the back of his Bible, he listed the name of, I think it was 46 names of men, his contemporaries, men who were finishing seminary, men who were going into the ministry. And he wrote their names down in this Bible. And when I had him as a professor, he was in his mid-80s, so 50, 60 years had gone by. And he said that he prayed for those men, and over the years as he heard about those men, every time he heard of one of those men leaving the ministry, leaving God, punting the faith, turning away from God, he would cross out their names there in the back of that one Bible. And then as I had him there in the mid-80s, he told us that more than half of those names were crossed out. And he urged us as students and future pastors to finish to the end. See, for those men, it got hard. They faced trials and they ran. Rather than embracing God and realizing that God was doing a million things they couldn't see, they turned away from God. What the preacher is saying here is the end is better than the beginning. He's impressed in the one who makes it to the end. Oh friend, you're hurting, you're struggling, stick with it. Stick with it. Don't run. Don't leave. And I'll tell you why. The preacher tells us why. That's lesson number three. Here's why. Here's why you don't go. Here's why you don't leave. Number three, we don't know what tomorrow holds. But we know who holds tomorrow. This is why we don't walk away from the faith when times are tough. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. You see what he's saying? What is bent can't be straightened. We can't fix the evil in the world. We can't stop disease and death. We can't call back the dead from the grave. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow in his hands. 
Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. God has things that he's doing that he simply doesn't tell us. And one of those things that confuses us is verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. It seems confusing to us. The good man suffers, even dies. But it seems like at times the bad guy wins. Now, in most movies, right, the good guy wins, unless it's a real artsy film, but the good guy usually wins. The superhero wins. But in this life, we look around, and sometimes it looks like the bad guys win. If you look over at the next chapter, chapter 8 says something similar. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. The preacher's looking out and he sees good people suffering, bad people thriving. But it's vanity, he says, to try and figure out what God is doing. Maybe you've asked this question before. Or maybe someone's asked it of you. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that question? Looks like the bad guy sometimes wins. And we want justice now. We want justice for the good people. When someone cheats us out of money, we want their rent to double next time. When someone gossips about us, we want their secrets to be detailed in bullet point form on the front page of the Gulf News. And we especially want justice for the guy who tailgates us, drives up right close to our bumper, flashes his lights on us while we're driving. We hope that their speeding gets them stuck in the biggest traffic jam they've ever seen and that they have to go to the toilet. And that the next exit is not for a hundred kilometers. Right? We want justice. We want the good guys to win. We want the bad guys to lose. We think we know how to solve problems the right way. We think we can hand out justice perfectly. But here's the problem. Chapter 7, verse 20. So the preacher saying this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The preacher's point, you want to know why bad things happen to good people? I'll tell you why. Because there are no good people. If we want instant justice, we need to be ready to receive it ourselves. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is just agreeing with the preacher. Do you see? It's not just Paul who says it. Paul repeats what the preacher says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous. There is not even one. No one does good. None of us can speak to God and say, God, I don't deserve these trials. My first pastor, Tommy, he used to often say that if we as a church, if we knew how wicked and evil he was, then there's no reason the church would let him into the pulpit. But he'd also say, if I knew how wicked and sinful you are, I wouldn't let you through those doors. 
Isn't that the truth? We're all messed up people, not just messed up people. We are sinners against a holy God, all of us. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the wrong question. Good people don't suffer because there are no good people. The right question to ask God is, why does anything good happen to me at all? Why does any grace come to me, a wretched sinner? That's the right question because, friends, all of life is a grace to us. God is infinitely kind to us for not sending us to immediate judgment. And yet there are trials in this fallen world, but even one minute of the most intense suffering is a grace to us. It's one more minute that we've been given to repent of our sin and to cling to Christ to save us. We can't let what we don't understand overwhelm what we do understand. God is in control over all of our lives. And God is good. Psalm 63, God's steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 107, he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. John 1, from him we have received blessing after blessing. Romans 8, he works all things together. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We can trust him tomorrow because he took care of us yesterday. We can go to sleep in peace tonight because he carried us through today. His faithfulness in the past and his faithfulness in the present gives us confidence that he will be faithful into the future. We just don't know how he's going to work it all out in the middle parts. The end of verse 14, God is in control over everything, but in a way that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God wants to be clear. He wants us to be clear that he is God and we are not. We don't know the mind of God. Job 38. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow in his hands. Well, the first verses of chapter 8 give us a picture of this. The preacher uses an illustration of a king and his servants. In verse 5, in the presence of the king, the wise person knows how to think and act. He's figured out how to live not only with kings, but he's ready for wisdom in all circumstances. Verse 6, even when trouble comes, he knows how to respond. Verse 9, even when someone hurts him. But I want you to look right there in verse 7. Right there in the middle, we are reminded again that we don't know what God is doing. And yet we know that God is in control. We see this throughout scripture. Joseph was in the pit. God was in control. When Moses was on the Nile, Ruth in the field, David in the cave, Jeremiah in tears, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the belly of the whale, the disciples in the storm at sea, Jesus on the cross. In all these things, God is in control. Oh, friend, look at the past. Look at the present. Trust God. He has your life in his hands. There is a purpose to our pain. And like Job said, shall I not accept from God's hand evil as well as good? Why does God do what he does? I don't know. 
but I do know that he, he is wise and he is good. I know that this life is temporary, and I know that it's ultimately for our good and for his glory. But he doesn't give us immediate answers. Look back at chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. The man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We can't figure out the mind of God, no matter how much we search, no matter what we do. So... Verse 15, the verse right before that truth, what do we do? And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Friend, give up trying to find out the future and enjoy the present. Give up trying to figure out tomorrow and trust God today. Eat ice cream. Have one, no two shawarmas later today. Enjoy your family. Take a walk by the creek. Smell the roses. Keep serving in the church even when you don't feel like it. If you're tired after a long week, get up on Friday and gather with God's people anyway. After a difficult day at work, do something countercultural and go study the Bible and have fellowship with your community group. Open your Bible in the morning and read it, even if you don't feel warm fuzzies inside about it. Even if you don't feel like it. Do it anyway. Share the gospel with a friend, even if you're nervous. Show love to your spouse, even if you don't feel like it in that moment. Walk with God. Honor Him. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow in His hands. Well, one last lesson, number four. Make God big and people small in your life. In this short life, make God big, make people small. Care most of all what God thinks about you. Look back at chapter 7, verse 16. Don't be overly righteous. Don't think you're above suffering. Don't think you're so good that you're above facing trials. It literally in that verse says, don't be excessively righteous for yourself. Proverbs 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 12, do not be wise in your own estimation. This was the Pharisees in Jesus' day. I praise God I'm not like everyone else. I praise God I'm not like those tax collectors over there. But then verse 17, don't be overly wicked either. Why should you hurt yourself with your sin? The godly man is both humble and moral. All throughout chapter 8, the preacher tells us that we do this by fearing God. Fearing God is to trust him, to desire, to please him. We recognize that he controls everything and we surrender to him. To make God big and to make people small. Be moral, but don't let it get to your head. Remember chapter 8, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. When you're humble, trials like chapter 8, verse 21 don't bother you. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. See, when God is big and people are small, when you fear God and not others, their words won't bother you. They won't hurt you as much. The fear of the Lord will free you from all lesser fears. Your first instinct might be to seek and destroy someone when they slander you. But when you're slandered, don't get bent out of shape. Remember that you care more about what God thinks and be humbled by the fact that you've slandered others also. Even if the person said something untrue, know this. There are all kinds of things they could have said about you that are true if they knew your heart. Fear God. Make people big. Make God small in your heart. This means growing in wisdom. But in verse 27, in your morality, don't think that by morality you can be totally wise and pure. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Did you notice this verse in your community groups this past week? Did the men and the women of your group argue about this? You see what it's saying? One man is righteous. Zero women. It's an amazing verse, right? All the men said, amen. It means men are better than women, right? No. Good answer. No, I think it's just poetry. He's saying, are there good men? Well, if you go out looking for one, it's like a one in a million chance. You're not going to find one. Go out looking for a woman. There are none. That's the point. It's essentially saying the same thing. You can't find a good person if you went looking for one. Chapter 7, verse 29. There's something wrong with us. We've all sinned. We sought out many schemes. They failed. But there's justice coming. Look further down at chapter 8, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked... Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Friends, this is our hope. Evil doesn't ultimately win. There's a day coming where God will make crooked things straight. We can trust in him because of what he did 2,000 years ago on that hill outside Jerusalem. We were all made for God. We were all made in his image to enjoy him. This world was not made to satisfy us. But just like those first two humans that reached out for that fruit in rebellion, we've reached out to this world in rebellion. We've sought to find significance and security and comfort and joy in the things of this world. We've rejected God. and We've alienated ourselves from him. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says that sin does more than frustrate. It makes us fugitives from our own destiny. We were made for heaven, but in sin we veered off the flight path there and are now headed towards destruction. We need God to rescue us. 
And thankfully, he provided a way there on Calvary. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He left heaven, came to earth, and he lived a perfect life. He was tempted, but he did not sin. He lived a life we couldn't live. And then he went and died a death in our place. He faced the full wrath of God. He faced taking all of our sin against himself. He was our substitute. He took our place. He lived for God, not for himself. And at the end of it, all of believers' sins were paid out on that cross. Oh, fellow Christian, go to him. We don't know the future. We have a a life full of limits. Go to him when you don't know what's going on. Go to him in your trials. Go to him on the difficult days. You were made for him. And friend, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, there's no other fountain from which to drink that can quench your inner thirst for meaning in this life. No magic exit door you can walk through to escape death. It will come. But for the one who repents of their sin... For the one who trusts in Jesus to save them, the end of the story will be an utterly happy one. Heaven, eternal, with all believers from all time. Turn to that God, and it will indeed be well with your soul. Let's pray. Well, Father, for some of us here, our hearts are broken. Some of us are confused. None of us here know what tomorrow holds. But we know that you hold tomorrow. And while we don't understand all things, we know you're faithful to us. Help us to remember this today and every day. That you are a good God. That you are a sovereign God. And that you will keep us to the end. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.